Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. That suffering made me stronger. And that is really what I know that I want to tell you to concentrate on not what you lost, but what you still have with you. And the COVID is time out, time out to redecide, not to go back, but to have a new beginning. Dr. Edith Eager is a psychologist, best-selling author, and survivor of possibly the worst atrocity ever known to mankind, the Holocaust. She was just a teenager when she and her family were sent to Auschwitz. Her parents to the gas chambers and Edith and her sister Magda to survive endless days of pain, starvation, and suffering. But in the hell of this camp, Edith discovered something surprising and vital that enduring the worst conditions imaginable brought out the best in herself. And those lessons would carry her through to her ultimate liberation on May 4th, 1945, and for the rest of her adult life. Most of all, I really tell the children in school what my mom told me in the train. And she said, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen, honey. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put in your mind. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one charitable podcast. heard about Dr. Edie when I was listening to another podcast and she was being interviewed by a big name journalist. I was mesmerized and immediately thought what a dream it would be for me to have her as a guest on All the Wiser. So we sent a letter through her publicist and crossed our fingers. When we finally got the email back that she had agreed to do this interview, I literally freaked out and had goosebumps and just from that moment was so excited. I dove into reading her book, which we'll talk about, and I hope that you will read and can honestly say that I am deeply changed by her words in the book and by the conversation that I'm about to share with you today. I think sometimes it's hard to even comprehend that the Holocaust happened, but I think it's so important that we listen and learn from survivors 
especially now with so few left living. They are treasures and gifts. And in the case of Dr. Edie, someone who shares the secrets of a meaningful life and teaches us how to break free of the prisons we create in our own minds. We'll be discussing topics like rejection, the power of choice, finding strength and suffering, identity, how to think about guilt, and why the word can't isn't in Edie's vocabulary. I am so grateful for the opportunity and the true privilege of sharing these words from an unforgettable 94-year-old woman. After 18 months of a pandemic, her words and message are exactly what the world needs right now. Before we get started, I want to share a quick reminder. Registration for my new course, All the Happier, is now open. In this live digital course, we take the inspiration and wisdom from all the wiser and the stories we share and teach you with science and research-backed tools, strategies, and actions to bring these lessons and the joy that comes with them into your own lives. The class goes live a week from today on Wednesday, October 13th. Enrollment closes soon. So if you're interested in joining me, and I hope you will, the time to sign up is now. To learn about the details of the class and register, you can go to allthehappier.com or click on the link in our show notes. Now, on to my conversation with the beautiful and wonderful Dr. Edith Eager. Dr. Eager, hello and welcome to All The Wiser. Thank you very much. I'm happy to show up for you, Kimmy. Well, I, I mentioned this before we officially started recording, but it is a privilege and an honor. And I just, in researching for this interview, have you know fallen in love with you and your books. And I really hope that every person who listens to this makes the time to read your book or listen to your book. I'm just so grateful that I can play a part today in helping to share your story with more people. Thank you. For many years, people asked me to write a book and I would automatically say, I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say. And then Philip Zimbardo called one day and said that the people who survived and famous are all men. We need a female voice. And that was the one that really finally pushed me to do the book, The Choice. Well, I am so happy that he found the words and the motivation to inspire you to publish your first memoir at 90 years old. It's a beautiful book. Thank you. Dr. Eager, I always love to start these interviews by having our guests introduce themselves. I think in general, uh, it's a more creative and insightful answer than me making the introduction. So I'm curious, how would you introduce yourself? Well, I have many, many names. The one I prefer more than anything else is Gigi Ditzo. And uh, my great-grandchildren 
call me a great grandma, and my my nickname is in Hungarian D I C U Ditso. So, but most of all, I am referred to as Edie. I'm going to be 94 September 29th, and I'm Hungarian and do not lie about my age. My sister is 100 years old, and she will tell you that she's 99 years old. I don't know why one year makes such a big difference. (laughs) But Hungarian women usually cut a few years off. Well, early happy birthday, and thank you for your honesty on your age. Thank you. 93 years, beautiful. We normally begin these episodes with our guests sharing about the backdrop of your childhood. And I know you were born and hungry and your father was a tailor and I believe your mom was a homemaker and you had two sisters, which we're going to talk about today. But you often ask a question about childhood, which is a different one. And that is, when did your childhood end? So I'm curious when that moment was for you. Uh, One of the things I must tell you that my two sisters were singing songs they made up in Hungarian that I'm so ugly, I'm so puny, that I'm never going to find a husband. And I heard that over and over again. The trouble was not what they sang to me, The trouble was that I believed it. And today when I go to schools, I ask the students not to allow anyone to define you because God doesn't make junk, young people tell me, and that you're beautiful and there'll never ever be another you. So I want to be a good cheerleader today and let people know that There'll never ever be another you. No one can replace you. And, you know, there's a couple of moments, and you talk about that a lot in the book, and your mom, too, saying that you were lucky to have your brains. She said, I'm glad you have brains because you have no looks. And I would imagine at that age that, that as you said, you believe it, and there it stings and perhaps yeah. hurts deeply. Exactly. I became a very studious girl in school. I graduated with honors. I I didn't think it hurt me any at all. And that's why today is my name, Dr. Edith Eva Eager. There's one English word that I like very much, and that is next. What is going to be next? You know, my curiosity really saved me and um, never giving up what's going to be next. And uh, when a woman tells me, I need to find a man, Edie, (laughs) I say, just uh, change your self-talk. And um, if you change your thinking, you can change your life. And I know your bright mind, your intellect would be one of the things that saved you along with your compassion and and so many other things that I'm excited to talk to you about. But you, you, in the book, share a moment, you were a very accomplished gymnast, you were a dancer, and you were training with the Olympic training team in your country. And there are many moments where your life 
changed within an instant, but this is one of them. Can you share that story? I do ask the question, uh, when did your childhood end? And when I was told that I don't qualify anymore and I have to train someone else because I'm Jewish and that was the shock. And of course, I looked at my trainer and said, I'm not Jewish, which didn't do me any good. Because when you were born in Hungary, you have to go to the city hall and register a child. And next to it, you put down the religion. So no matter how many times you wanted to change your religion, you were exactly what you were uh, when you were born and it's all written down. All you have to go is go to the city hall. And that was really the record because I practiced at least five hours a day. At least. That was my life. And the story you, you know, explained is your coach pulling you aside in the hall and saying you're no longer a part of the team and you would train your replacement. And when you ask why, you see tears, right, in her eyes. And she says what to you? Right, right. And I think that in a way, I am grateful that I'm here sitting with you today because I suffered so much. And that suffering made me stronger. And that is really what I know that I want to tell you, that to concentrate on not what you lost, but what you still have with you. And the COVID is time out, time out to regroup and redecide, not to go back, but to have a new beginning. So I'm coming to you as a midwife. And you're pregnant and you're going to give birth to the you that was meant to be. What you're going to hold on to and what are you willing? It's a very good word, willing to be willing to change and let go of the need for other people's approval of you. And, you know, not everybody is going to love you. If I come to you, Kimmy, and I tell you I like to get to know you and you told me, No, you're not interested in me. There is no such word in my book called rejection. Rejection is just an English word that people make up to express a feeling when you don't get what you want. It's all about your expectations. So there's the moment when you're asked to leave the gymnastics team, this Olympic training team, because you are Jewish. But your life is... You know, in, in spite of some of the things you, you mentioned early on, you are at this time a 16-year-old girl. You are in love. You have purpose, meaning you have a family. And there is a night where you are literally plucked from your home, plucked from your life, everything you know to be true. Can you share what you remember about that night and the circumstances? I think what comes up for me right now is Passover dinner at my house in March 1944. And after the dinner, my father got up and kissed our heads. And we went to bed, and a couple hours later, there was banging on our door and uh, picked us up. I remember taking off 
my nightgown and my sister told me, you look better naked than dressed. <laughs> I remember her, her Hungarian cynicism and comments. But we were taken into a, a factory and from there taken to Auschwitz in May 1944. And I think it's important to mention that you had two sisters, Magda and Clara, and Clara was a child prodigy, an accomplished musician, and her Gentile teacher hit her. So now it's your mom, your dad, and Magda on the train to Auschwitz. What happens when you arrive at Auschwitz? I never heard of Auschwitz, but I read in German, Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free. And I remember my father said, that's okay, we're just going to work and then we go home. And that's not happened at all. Unfortunately, everyone over 14, every young mother with a child, everybody was taken to the gas chamber. And when I faced Dr. Mengele and he asked me, pointing at my mom, is this your mother or is this your sister? And I could never forgive myself that I told him, that's my mother. And he pointed her to go to the left, and I followed my mother. And again, I never forget those eyes. And he said to me, you're going to see your mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower and grab me and threw me on the other side, which meant life. And Dr. Mengele who was known as the angel of death. Yes, he was known. I think he wore a white uniform, but but I know that he came to our barracks and he wanted to be entertained. And my friends just volunteered me and threw me in front of him. And he looked at me and said, dance for me. And then I, I pretended that I was at the Budapest Opera House and the music was Tchaikovsky and I was dancing the Romeo and Juliet at the Budapest Opera House and I never will forget any moment of it when he gave me a piece of bread and I was going to eat it and then I looked at the girls who were on my on my block there and thank God I did not eat the bread and I I climbed up and shared it with the other girls. And all we had was each other there. And it's good that I shared the bread because when I was in a death march going from uh, Mauthausen to Gunskirchen, when you stopped, you were shot right away. And I revisited that place. You were shot and thrown into uh, this gutter and the girls that I shared the bread with, when they saw me stopping, they came and they carried me so I wouldn't die. Isn't that amazing that the worst condition, I tell you, bring us the best in us? I found love. I found love. And they asked me, where was God in Auschwitz? And my answer is, God was with me and guided me to turn hate to pity. And I began to pray, and I began to really look at the guards, not with hatred, but with pity. 
that they were brainwashed to hate me and that they are the prisoners, not me. That act in the book, the chapter is Dancing in Hell. And as you said, you are asked to dance for the same man who has just killed your mother on that same day. And so many things, that moment, as you said, where you go into your mind and and telling the story of where you go in your mind, so much of what I got from your book is the power of our own stories. And I would imagine in a time where you could control nothing, it became crystal clear that that was the one thing you had control of. And that act of compassion and choice for the women you were with and that later those same women would stop and create a chair with their bodies to carry you. You weave it all together so beautifully in spite of all the darkness that you continue to call out these lessons that apply to all of us as inspiration. Thank you very much. I just like to add to it that all we had was each other there and all we have is each other now. And I really would like to have a dream, just like Martin Luther King, how we can unite and how can we really truly form a human family that you can be you and I can be I, but together we're going to be so much stronger than me alone or you alone. So I'm so, so happy that God has chosen you to interview me today so brilliantly. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, you explain in great detail, and at times I would say poetry, the conditions, your day-to-day existence in, in Auschwitz. And I think many of us have, have read and, and certainly watched films over the years. But if you can paint a picture of that time, the conditions, what your external reality is. You know, I could not control what happens outside of me. They could throw me in a gas chamber any minute, four o'clock in the morning as we stood there. We didn't know what's going to happen next. When we took a shower, we didn't know whether water or gas is going to come out. The only thing I could control is my attitude. And actually, if I would have died, I would have been found praying for the guards. And you have some beautiful moments in this spite of this very, very dark, hellish period that exist in your head and in the heads of the women around you. And it was fascinating. We're going to talk about hunger because it's such a theme in the book. But you talk about cooking, which I thought was beautiful, that you would in fact cook together. Can you explain that? I think we all we talked about was food. All we talked about how much caraway seeds I put in a soup and how much paprika I put in my chicken paprika. And all we did was talk about food, salivating all over the place. And uh, it, it really kept us somehow uh, going. We even had a boob contest. I mean, we did silly things just so we know that we can go day by day, hopefully even minute by minute, that this is temporary and that we can get out of here someday. 
And, you know, you talked about the sharing of the recipes and bringing the food to life in your minds and conversations and and the boob contest, which I believe you won the boob contest or one of them. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Yes. Yes. And I also was uh, winning the boob contest. <laughs> I want you to know because I was a gymnast. And uh, I had a very good body. I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, you know, I had a boyfriend, but he never touched any part of me. But I did get a kiss on my 16th birthday. And then he continued and he gave me 16 kisses. And that's that's the beautiful memories that I do remember. Unfortunately, he was killed the day before liberation. He did. And I know his, your love for him. And can you share actually the parting moment when you left on the train, the, the last words that he said to you? His name was Eric, yes. And he, he told me that I will never forget your eyes and your hands. And in Auschwitz, I would go to anyone I could find and ask Tell me about my eyes. Tell me about my hands. And that kept me alive that if I survive today, then tomorrow I'll be free. Tomorrow, tomorrow was really, truly the best thing I had in Auschwitz. Tomorrow became my friend that somehow together we're going to make it. And this is just temporary. And I can survive it and become stronger from suffering. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's so clear in your words what a great love he was in your life. But you have described Auschwitz as a place of self-discovery. So I'm curious what you mean by that and what you discovered about yourself. I discovered not to depend on the outside, but to rediscover my inner strength Most of all, I really tell the children in school what my mom told me in the train. And she said, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen, honey. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put in your mind. So I ask the students to check out a movie called The Karate Kid because the best power is the brain power and not to mess with their brain and not to smoke pot as a teenager. So I I do do a little preaching too. At my age, I can afford that. I may have you call my teenage son. He just turned 14. I think that's fabulous advice, Dr. Edie. (laughs) Don't smoke pot and watch Karate Kid. (laughs) So we've talked about identities, even you identifying yourself as your sisters being the beautiful and sexy ones and, you know, you being the brains, those ways in which we identify ourselves. And you also talk about moments of kindness when you are in a living hell. But one moment of kindness that ties back to identity when you arrived and your head was shaved and your sister Magda, who was known for her beauty, looked at you. Yes, and asked me, how do I look? And I had a choice. 
as you have a choice now, whether you pay attention to what you lost or what is still with you. And I became her mirror and I told her, Magda, you have such beautiful eyes and I didn't see it when you had your hair all over the place. So I think this is a very good way to know how to differentiate between reacting or responding. So someone talks to you, you just need to take a deep breath. And the longer they talk, the more relaxed you become. That was a beautiful moment of kindness and love for your sister. But you have said that in spite of the hell, there were in fact moments of kindness and love that happened around you. So I'm curious what some of those moments were, what you witnessed. What stands out for me more than anything else, uh, this is kind of April 1945 when the German people are starving and we are in a German village and we are told that if we leave the premises, we're going to be shot right away. But my sister Magda told me that she's hungry and she's going to die. And I didn't pay any attention to, to the rules. And I came outside and I saw some carrots in the next garden. You know, being a gymnast, I still knew how to jump like a cat. And I stole the carrots and I climbed up the wall and I heard guns shooting at least three times. And I said to myself, I'm going to die. And then I began to pray, not for me, but for the guard. And there was an eye contact I will never forget. You know, it's like a German father who's going to teach me a lesson, that kind of a look, and turned the gun around and pushed me inside. And the following morning he came and he wanted to know who dared to break the rules last night. And I got so scared. I got so scared that maybe he'll kill us all. And I crawled to him and I told him it was me. And he gave me a little loaf of bread. Remember the times the Germans are starving too and said to me, you must have been very hungry to do what you did. I wish I could meet that man. There was kindness. There was a God and love among all of us. I remember I saved my bread because when we were in the evening getting a piece of bread, which was kind of like sawdust and and a soup, and I ate my soup, but I saved the bread and I gave it to Magda the next day and I told her that I'm really not hungry at all. So I think that that was what I chose to do because I knew that she's much hungrier than I was. I was very skinny, but I was a gymnast. I was very strong. I used to pick up my father and carry him around and show everyone my stomach. And I asked you to hit it to see how strong I am. (laughs) Great boobs and a six pack stomach. I love it. So you are not a strong woman. Kimi, you are a woman of strength, and I like that. We are women of strength, and that inner strength is, comes 
from the way you think, because the way you think, you create what you think. So if you change your thinking, I guarantee you, you can change your life. You know, hunger comes up so much in in the book, obviously, but I know there are times when you were eating blades of grass where the hunger was so deep and painful that you witness cannibalism around you. And I'm, I don't think hunger is, is something that most people can relate to, that type of life-taking hunger. And yes, cannibalism did break out. And because I asked God to help me that I don't want to touch other person's uh, ever uh, body. And God asked me to look down and I had grass to eat, and I even there chose one blade of grass over the other. So I can't, is not in my vocabulary. So when I go to school, I put on a board, I can't, equals I am helpless. And then I take off the T and the apostrophe and put down I can. Why? Because I think I can. So when you think, next time, see whether you are for something or against something. I get rid of guilt and I get rid of worry. Guilt is in the past and I cannot change the past. I hope to learn from it and going through that experience, but I don't get stuck in that. I don't live in Auschwitz. I call it my cherished wound cherished wound. You just spoke about the soldiers, American soldiers. Yes, GIs. They showed me how to the boogie woogie. So you just spoke about the American GIs that you would eventually be freed from. But I know in advance of that, you were forced on a death march that would last 35 miles. Your back was broken, as you said, eating blades of grass. I believe you were down to 80 pounds. If you can explain your physical health, sort of where your body was on that march. I never gave up hope. I can't, it's not in my vocabulary. Yes, I am. Yes, I can. Yes, I will. So Mike, condition on the march was really a miracle that I'm here talking to you. I don't know ever, and I did revisit every place I've been. I actually went back to Auschwitz and I asked my sister to come with me and she told me I'm an idiot. How can I even think of it, much less? And I think that that was the best thing that I did. I based my whole theory on that how to grieve, how to feel, and how to heal. You cannot heal what you don't feel. So don't try to understand things. That word is, that belongs to somewhere in the university, somewhere in a classroom. I don't try to understand things. I like to live life to the fullest, working, loving, and playing. And there was as you said, this miracle of where you were in your physical body, the deterioration from the abuse that you make it, but you have the moment when you are found by the GIs, the American troops. Can you 
explain that moment? I saw a, a big tank coming. I saw a big tank coming, and I was among the dead. And I just looked up, and someone is holding my hand. And I see a big leap, and that's when Oprah stood up and said, he was black. I said, I saw tears in the eyes and M&Ms in the hand. If you're that person somewhere in America in your 90s, call me. <laughs> and that's how it happened on May 4th, 1945, when God has saved me to be here with you today to teach people to be a good, good person to you and be a good present to you because self-love is beautiful. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, I think he told us to look at the same thing differently, to be a realist and not an idealist. So I, I think there is a big difference between believing or having faith. People say to me, I believe, I believe, I believe, but I will know what kind of life you lead because love is not what you feel, is what you do. And I want to let our listeners know, and I hope he is listening, that brave, kind man who reached his hand out to yours. But I believe you would later learn that they were in fact M&Ms, which is a new... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was a new realization to you. But but I remember you saying that your dad had said to always keep a sweet treat in your pocket as an offering. Is that right? And that it was, in fact, this man who reached his hand out. Yeah, they were, they were little sugar cubes to always have one sugar cube with you and save it, save it, save it until you really, really have to help yourself so you can survive. My uh, my father always told me that when I grow up, I'll be the best dressed girl in town. So I want to always say to Papa, watch me because I am a pretty elegant person. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we were on Zoom, Dr. I Eager. Wish we were. <laughs> I wish I could do the high kick for you too. And I, I, I just hope that that you and I can hug and never give up hope, never give up hope. We have yet to meet, hopefully, maybe not today or tomorrow. (laughs) I know you're known for the designer, beautiful designer clothes and the high kick, so hopefully one day. But before we talk about the chapter after the Holocaust, and I really just want to get to, to some of the incredible lessons that you share and really distill those down in practical ways for people. But I heard you share in an interview this phenomenon that Viktor Frankl witnessed at Auschwitz as well. And you did the day that GI reached out to you and grabbed your hand is that people would walk back. So here they were in this position to walk free And this phenomenon of people turning back into the gates or turning back into, you know, sitting in the grass. And you equated it to, because you are now 
a psychologist who works with people, people in abusive relationships, they come back. But I found that fascinating and something I had never heard. So can you explain that? Yes, honey. What happened that I was in a very bad physical condition, but I watched people to go through the gate and pretty soon come back and sit down. And one of my colleagues that I highly respect is Dr. Seligman, who talks about learned helplessness. And I can talk to you about the wife who is beaten by her husband. And the husband tells the wife that without him, she is nothing. And the trouble is that she leaves and then she comes back because she believes the husband that she's nothing without him. So this is what I have experienced, that we were free, but we didn't know what to do with the freedom. We would just sit there and wonder what's next. And I want to get to moving to America and the life that you have built here. But after the liberation, you were incredibly sick. You had... Typhoid fever. Typhoid fever, a broken back. I think you had lost all your hair, 80 pounds. I could never laugh. It was so painful. Well, first of all, I think it's important for people, you and Magda both, your sister, made it out alive. You're eventually reunited with your sister, Clara, who had been hidden during this past year. But you said that of your town, returning to your town that there was 70 of 15,000 people. So while you had this miracle of you three sisters, there was almost no room for celebration because of the wake of the devastation. You had lost Eric, your parents, your grandparents. You are hospitalized because you're deeply sick and you would meet your husband there. Again, the complexity of that time, even you know the marriage and the celebrations that your people, your family were not there with you. So it's so, so layered, but you did find love and marriage and you had a baby and eventually you make it to America where you would have two daughters. But for 20 years, you didn't want to talk about this, where now you have you know, made, made a career out of talking about this. And I've heard you say the prison you created for yourself was worse than Auschwitz or the prison's walls that were created for you. But I'm curious about that time and not sharing where that came from, I can imagine, but I would love to hear in your words. Yes, I had my secret and then... You know, the secret had me, but I think it was important for me to adjust and not to scare my children about uh, Auschwitz when I just needed to become a Yankee Doodle Dandy like you. And so I chose, unfortunately, something that I wouldn't do today. I had my secret, and I think if you have your secret it's better to share it because what comes out of your body doesn't make you ill. What stays in there does. And the biggest concentration camp is in your own mind. And the key is in your pocket. 
So that's why I'm so glad that I did go back to school and I did graduate with honors. And I, I am Dr. Edith Eva Eager. Today, I am a clinical psychologist. I am also a teaching at the University of San Diego Medical School, third-year psychiatric residence. And um, the subject now is about death and dying. And I like to quote Elizabeth Kubler-Rose, who said that death is the last celebration of life. So I know in my deathbed, I'm going to feel very satisfied knowing and celebrating not what what I got, but what I gave, hopefully, to you and everyone else who would like to know my story and knowing that there is hope in hopelessness and there is a good time to know that suffering is feelings. And without feelings, we just go through the motions in life. So suffering makes us stronger and I live in a present and I can only touch you now. I love that. And I only have a few more questions left just to let you know, but I'm curious about your transformation. And as you said, you know, to share, to feel, to heal. And during those 20 years, I know there was survivor's guilt. You've talked about the guilt of that moment with your mother and her going in the in the left line and PTSD and flashbacks and triggers and trauma and all of those things that come with the trauma you endured. I even heard you say that still, you know, you were walking in San Diego to have a beautiful steak at a restaurant and the, and the cobblestone can bring things back. So without diminishing that that pain ever goes away, I am curious when you did decide to speak, to share, to let go of the secret, to grieve, what is the transformation that happened with that choice and the actions that followed? What changed within you from that 20 years of of hiding? I think I gave up the me that what we call the ego, the false self. Why? Because it's false. And now I can be me, my true self. So uh, I am my true self. I am very, very the happiest and youngest right now because I live in a present and I think young. You know, Dr. Edie, I, I heard in another interview that you mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King that when bathrooms were segregated in this country that you would intentionally go to the segregated bathroom. So I'm curious in these moments in history where we see hate and all of these things that have threads to what you've been through, what that ignites in you and and those types of choices during the civil rights moment that you made. Yes, I, I came to America in 1949 and I worked in a factory in Baltimore getting seven cents a dozen. So have to cut off threads of waxer shirts. And the faster we work, the more seven cents I got for a dozen. And so I kept myself from going to the bathroom. But when I did go to the bathroom, I read a sign, colored, 
And I realized that there is prejudice in America. And that was hard after Nazi Germany and communist Russia. So I, I gathered the women of color and I also went to the meetings and eventually I ended up in 1963, I think 1963, in Washington, D.C., singing, We Shall Overcome with the Papas and the Mamas. There was a lovely lady, lovely lady, and uh, I sang with them. And then I ended up getting a handshake from Martin Luther King. Guess what? I did make it. I did make it, and that's why I am doing everything I can at my age that we can truly love each other and have joy and passion for life. Wonderful. So two more questions. The role of forgiveness and your journey of healing and sharing. I know you say forgiveness does not happen without rage. So the role of forgiveness and forgiving your persecutors, forgiving Hitler, forgiving everybody who was involved in what you endured during the Holocaust. Can you explain that process and that statement that's so powerful that forgiveness does not come without rage? I want to thank you so much, Kimi, for doing your homework. But I also want to tell you that each of us have a one of a kindness, uh, authentic self. And if you gave it up and became someone in your family that you had to assume a role or a role expectation, I think it's time to reclaim that part in you and become the true you that was meant to be. Forgiveness is not about me forgiving you for what you did to me. I don't have any godly powers or anything like that. I think forgiveness is, as you look at it, is two words, forgive. And the word is I give myself permission to give up the need for other people's approval of me, that I reclaim my true self. And so forgiveness is a gift that I give to myself. Because if I would live with hate and seek revenge, I still would be a prisoner. And I refuse to be a victim. It's not who I am. It's not my identity. It's what was done to me. And that's a big difference. I love that. I'm free. I'm free to live as long as I can. So I have one last question, and then we end with something that's very light and fun and just takes a few minutes. But as you said, you earned a master's, a PhD in psychology, and I love hearing you say that you are not a shrink, you are a stretch. Uh-huh. <laughs> And pushing us all to to stretch how we think about ourselves in the world. But you also talk about, which is something that comes up on this podcast a lot, about people saying, well, I can't equate or talk about, you know, my trauma or my pain because you survived the Holocaust. 
and that you are dedicated to being a facilitator of healing. And that means that everyone's prisons are real, the prisons of our makings, whether that is a marriage, a job, an old story, a past hurt, and that you deeply believe there is a reason that you survived, that your purpose and your calling in these lessons. So I am curious, when you share, what is your greatest hope that people take away from your words and your message? When a person tells me that I was inappropriately touched, but I don't know how to tell you because you were in Auschwitz, my answer to that is, I knew the enemy and you didn't. So, you know, there is no comparison because if you were touched inappropriately, that's when you truly is ending your childhood. And I hope to be a very good compassionate listener and my greatest hope is that people will learn that God gave us two ears and one mouth so we would talk less and listen more. Dr. Eager, thank you. You are a gift and I am lucky and blessed that you gave me this opportunity to to know you and to talk to you and it will stand out in, in certainly this podcast, but in my career of interviews and storytelling. So thank you for the privilege. I like to tell you that revenge only gives you a very temporary satisfaction. Uh, but the forgiveness that I speak about is that has given me the greatest hope and the greatest uh, freedom. So with that in mind, I wish you well, Kimmy girl, and uh, I thank you for your brilliant, wonderful, detailed interview. Uh, You made my day, and keep on keeping on. You're great. Thank you. All right, so here we go. Lightning round with Dr. Eager. Favorite indulgence? Favorite indulgence? Wow. Go to the French pastry shop and have a Napoleon. Best way to spend a Saturday? The best way to spend Saturday is uh, really um, uh, relaxing and um, just celebrating that the week has gone well and get rid of yes, but and practice yes, and. Favorite television show? Oh, Jeopardy. I'm totally addicted to Jeopardy. Don't call me 7.30 at night. I am doing Jeopardy and wondering how I could answer every question except sports. My greatest hope for my great-grandchildren is? That they will have my books on their living room table and they will celebrate that they're carrying my blood, a blood of a survivor who never, ever gave up. All right, last one, and it's it's a trick question because I know the answer, but I want everyone listening to know the answer. How do you spell love? T-I-M-E, time. It's a four-letter word. 
It's so true. Giving time to the people in your life is the greatest act of love. Thank you for giving me this time. Like I said, I I loved you from from the second I, I started reading your story and your words and enjoy your morning. I cannot wait to share our conversation with our listeners. Thank you very much. The last, the very last, so richly, brightly, dazzling yellow. Perhaps if the sun's tears could sing against a white stone. Today's interview with Dr. Eager supports the USC Shoah Foundation, an institute for visual history and education. Their mission is to develop empathy, understanding, and respect through testimony. All of their programs focus on preserving and expanding their testimony collections. It is through these stories that they research the history and prevention of genocide. They are a global historic archive and their power is in the collection and preservation of compelling stories like Dr. Edie's. If you listen to this podcast, you believe in the power of story. So I encourage you to check them out online at sfi.usc.edu. The link is in the show notes as well. And before I leave you, a reminder that today's conversation was sponsored by All the Happier, my new online course rooted in positive psychology. Many of the lessons that Dr. Edie shared today and the principles she lives by are at the heart of positive psychology. The goal of the course is to take the wisdom from the podcast and give you research and science-backed tools, and strategy to bring more joy, meaning, and connection into your lives. Enrollment ends this week, so if you're interested in learning more, you can find us at allthehappier.com, where you can sign up to meet me and join me in this impactful class. Thank you for listening, and may Dr. Edie's words stay with you throughout today and the weeks and years ahead. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. That butterfly was the last one. Butterflies don't live. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.